There is an uncanny resemblance between our behavior toward each other and our behavior toward the earth, between our relation to our own sexuality and our relation to the reproductivity of the earth, for instance, the resemblance is plain and strong and apparently inescapable. By some connection that we do not recognize, the willingness to exploit one becomes the willingness to exploit the other. We are, you see, at a very peculiar moment in history. The old framework. From trying to understand the evil that's abroad. Science itself has become a problem. Than ever before. Even we are conserving literally. It's impossible to care for each other more. What must be done how we care for the earth? Yeah. Now we see all the literally for our survival on the planet. We have to there is no way on the without love. The way of life. It is the small community, not the same. I belong here. I am part of this body. We are one together. Talking to children could build on our shoulders rather than on our realizing that everything on the earth as being with us, not for us. rocky outcropping off the northeastern coast of England, the monastery of Lindisfarne once stood as an outpost of religious, philosophic, and intellectual study against the dark times of medieval Europe. Inspired by the foresight and dogged determination of these medieval monks, William Irwin Thompson founded the Lindisfarne Association in 1972 to gather together both scientists, scholars, artists, and contemplatives to realize a new planetary culture in the face of the political, cultural, and environmental crises of the 20th century. The Lindisfarne tapes represent some of the most visionary thinking of the time, drawing connections between culture, economics, society, and technology. While the germs of new ideas contained in these tapes are now beginning to take root, they remain an invaluable source of speculative thinking that will continue to inspire our visions of a more just and regenerative future. In this Lindisfarne lecture, Wendell Berry, farmer, poet, and essayist, and author of The Unsettling America, Culture and Agriculture, Farming, a Handbook, and A Continuous Harmony, traces the effects of divisions branching out from the division between body and soul in the household and in the farm community where he lives. Well, a thing has started here, seeing where you're coming uh, from. And where I'm coming from is a, a farm community or an ex-farm community. Or an once almost farm community where my families, my ancestors lived as far back as we have any, any memory. I mean, we don't remember except for one Irishman, anybody outside Henry County, Kentucky. And uh, I'm coming from the awareness that I felt long before I could understand it, that that community, that possibility of community anyway, that once existed there is really in disarray, in, in very bad shape. It's, uh, it was in my father's boyhood in, in bad shape economically. That was the... That was the impressive thing that was visible at that time. Uh, they were tobacco growers, and one of my father's earliest memories is, was of seeing farmers work all year and sell their crop and owe the marketing commission. Uh, that is, make nothing or less than, <clears throat> than nothing. I mean, my father was part of an effort. That it's still a kind of a model agricultural program, although it's been under fire from, beginning and from the beginning, in Washington to protect the tobacco on the market. That's helped some, kept the small farmers surviving in my part of the country economically until now, but the community is still in disarray, and the disarray of the community or the disintegration of the communities has continued and, and accelerated, and my, my experience is that, you, that uh, or, or my experience has led me to feel that in dealing with disintegration, you can't put it back together at the top economically. And, and I suppose you could describe my approach as uh, Confucian in a way, 
uh, in the sense that Confucius said, if you want to make order in the kingdom, you've got to make order in your house. Uh, then, of course, in our time, we depart from Confucius a little bit because we understand better than, than he did because we have to feel it in a different way than he had to feel it, that to make order in the house is to make some kind of sexual order. Um, I'm writing a book on agriculture, on farming, on, and out of the sense that farming is a cultural pursuit, not an economic pursuit. That it's a cultural pursuit that has to be founded on biological analogies. Um, and increasingly, I'm writing out of the sense that uh, a rift in the spirit is a geologic flaw. And my, my chapter uh, that I'm going to read from is the chapter in which I finally ran head on into the whole issue of, of uh, sexuality. I just soon not have run head on in it because it's too, it's too freighted with my bewilderment. But where I began, the chapter is about the relationship of the body to the earth. And uh, I began with, with Blake, uh, Blake's statement that there's no distinction. Man, has, man does not have a body distinct from his soul, or woman, either. <laughs> um, but then my sense of it is that you get a series of of breaches or rifts branching out from the rift between the body and the soul. And that any time you make a disconnection between things that ought to be joined, you throw them into competition. And uh, I was thinking about it's, that sense of it is given very fully in Shakespeare's Sonnet 146, if you want to read it. Poor soul, center of my sinful earth. And then he tells his soul to thrive upon the body's loss. Uh, to, to start that process is, is to begin something that, a process of division that, that has no limits and that finally involves men and women and us all on the earth. Well, I'm, I'm going to read some passages and then summarize some passages because, and I'm going to do this because. The, the uh, structure of this chapter and this thinking is so, still so much entangled, I don't have any faith at all that I could talk about it with, without reading it. To divide body and soul, uh, now I would like to say one other thing. Uh, you'll have to bear with me through some obviousness. I'm, I'm going to talk about some things that the women have made obvious. And uh, uh, I have to respect the obvious because it takes me so long to see so much of it. To divide body and soul, or body and mind, is to inaugurate a, an expanding series of divisions, not, however, an infinitely expanding series, because it's apparently the nature of division, sooner or later, to destroy what is divided. The principle of durability is unity. The divisions issuing from this basic one are first sexual and then ecological. Uh, could I have a glass of water or a glass? Here's a, here's a pitcher. <laughs> I'd get it myself, but I'm, I'm in a harness. Many other divisions branch out from those, but those are the most important because they have to do with the fundamental relationships that we ha all have in common with each other and with the earth. To think of the body, to think of the body as separate from the soul. Thank you a lot or is soulless, either to subvert its appetites, as in uh, re religion, some kinds of religion, or to free them, as with uh, a lot of our people now, is to make an object of it. As a thing, the body is denied any dimension or rightful presence in the mind. The concerns of the body, all that is comprehended in the term nurture, are thus degraded and denied any respected place among the higher things. 
and even among the more exigent practicalities. The first sexual division comes about when nurture is made the exclusive concern of women. This cannot happen until a society becomes industrial. In hunting and gathering and in agricultural societies, men are of necessity also involved in nurture. In those societies, there have usually been differences between the work of men and that of women. But the necessity here is to distinguish between sexual difference and sexual division. In an industrial society, following the division of body and soul, we have at the upper or professional level a division between culture in the specialized sense of philosophy, arts, the humanities, and so on, and practicality, and both of these become increasingly abstract. Thinkers do not act, and the practical men do not work with their hands, but manipulate the abstract quantities and values that come from the work of workers. Workers are simplified or specialized into machine parts to do the wage work of the body, which they were initially permitted to think of as manly because for the most part women did not do it. Women had been doing the most confining, though not necessarily the least dignified, tasks of nurture, housekeeping, the care of young children, and food preparation. In the urban industrial situation, the confinement of these traditional tasks divided women more and more from the important tasks so-called of the new economy. Also in this situation, the traditional nurturing role of men, that of provisioning the household, which in an agricultural society had become as constant and complex as the woman's role, became completely abstract. The man's duty to the household came to be simply to provide money. The only remaining task of provisioning, purchasing food, was turned over to women. This determination that nurturing should become exclusively a concern of women served to signify to both sexes that neither nurture nor womanhood was very important. But the assignment to women of a kind of work thought both onerous and trivial was only the beginning of their exploitation. As the persons now exclusively in charge of the tasks of nurture, women often came into sole charge of the household budget. They became family purchasing agents. The time of the household barter was past. Kitchens were now run on a cash economy. Women had become customers, a fact not long wasted on the salesman. And they did not long neglect to notice that in these women they had customers of a new and most promising kind. Modern housewives were isolated from their husbands, from their school-aged children, and from other women. They were saddled with work from which much of the skill, hence much of the dignity, had been withdrawn in which they themselves were less and less able to consider important. They did not know what their husbands did at work or after work, and they knew that their lives were passing in his regardlessness and in his absence. Such a woman was ripe for a sales talk. This was the great commercial insight of modern times. Such a woman must be told or subtly made to understand that she must not be a drudge, that she must not let work affect her looks, she must be always fresh and cheerful and young and shapely and pretty. All her sexual and mortal fears were thus given a voice in the advertisements, and she could be made to reach for money to buy, to buy some. What was implied was always the question that a certain bank finally asked outright in a billboard advertisement, is your husband losing interest? Motivated no longer by practical needs, but by loneliness and fear, women began to identify themselves by what they bought rather than by what they did. They bought labor-saving devices which worked, as most modern machines have tended to work, to devalue or replace the skills of those who used them. They bought manufactured foods, which did likewise. They bought any product that offered to lighten the burdens of housework, to be kind to hands or to endear one to one's husband. And they furnished their houses as they made up their faces and selected their clothes, neither by custom nor invention, but by the suggestion of articles and advertisements in women's magazines. Thus, housewifery, once a complex discipline, acknowledged to be one of the bases of civilization, was reduced to the exercise of purchasing power. The housewife's major remaining productive capacity was that of reproduction. But even as a mother, she remained a consumer 
subjecting herself to, all, to an all-presuming doctor, and again to written instructions calculated to result in the purchase of the merchandise. Breastfeeding of babies became unfashionable, one suspects, because it was the last form of home production. No way could be, found, could be found to persuade a woman to purchase her own milk. All these improvements involved a radical simplification of mind that was bound to have complicated and ironical results. As housekeeping became simpler and easier, it also became more boring. A woman's work, so-called, became less accomplished and satisfying. It became easier for her to believe that what she did was not important. And this heightened her anxiety and made her even more avid and less discriminating as a consumer. The cure not only preserved the disease, but compounded it. There was, of course, a complementary development in the minds of men, but there's less to say about it, or at least I've found less to say about it. The man's mind was not simplified by a degenerative process, but by a kind of coup. As soon as he separated working and living, that is, when he quit working where he lived, began to work away from home. The practical considerations of the household were excerpted from his mind all at once. In modern marriage, then, what was once a difference of work became a division of work. And in this division, the household was destroyed as a practical bond between husband and wife. It was no longer a condition, but only a place, not a, no, no longer a circumstance that required dignified and even rewarded the enactment of mutual dependence, but the site of a mutual estrangement. Home became a place for the husband to go when he wasn't working or amusing himself, and it was where the wife was held in a kind of servitude. A sexual difference is not a wound, or it need not be. A sexual division is, and it's important to recognize that this division, this destroyed household that now stands between the sexes, is a wound that is suffered inescapably by both men and women. What I mean is that you can't break anything in two without having two wounds. And what interests me is, is that the wound is always a record of how it goes back to, together. We're familiar with the concept of the disintegra disintegral life of our time as an exploded cathedral, the various concerns of culture no longer existing in reference to each other or within the discipline of any understanding of their unity. It may also be conceived and its strains more immediately felt as an exploded household. Without the household, not just as a unifying ideal, but as a practical circumstance of mutual dependence and obligation requiring skill, moral discipline, and work, Husband and wife find it less and less possible to imagine and enact their marriage. Without much in particular that they can do for each other, they have a scarcity of reasons to be together. They may like each other's company, but that's a reason for friendship, not marriage. Aside from, from affection for their children, if any of either, and their abstract legal and economic obligations to each other, their union has to be empowered by sexual energy alone. Perhaps the most dangerous and certainly the most immediately painful consequence of the disintegration of the household is this isolation of sexuality. The division of sexual energy from the functions of household and community that it ought both to empower and to grace is analogous to that other modern division between hunger and the earth. When it is no longer allied by proximity and analogy, to the nurturing disciplines that bound the household to the cycles of fertility and the seasons, life and death, then sexual love loses its symbolic or its ritualistic force. It loses its sense of consequence and responsibility. It becomes autonomous, to use the, that word for a, for a curious ambition, to be valued only for its own sake, therefore frivolous, therefore destructive, even of itself. The isolation of sexuality makes it subject to two influences that dangerously oversimplify it. The lower of sexual romance and capitalist economics. By sexual romance, I mean the sentimentalization of sexual love that for years has been the work of popular songs and stories. Hollywood musicals, for 
by the means of them, young people have been taught a series of dangerous falsehoods. That people in love ought to conform to the fashionable models of physical beauty, and that to be unbeautiful by these standards is to be unlovable. That people in love are or ought to be young, even though in the songs love is always said to last forever. That marriage is a solution, in a simple sense. Whereas the most misleading thing a love story can do is to end happily with a marriage. Not because there's no such thing as a happy marriage, but because marriage can't be happy unless it's made happy. That love alone can make harmony and resolve serious, difficult, serious difficulties. That love will find a way and finally triumph over any kind of practical difficulty. That the right partners are made for each other or that marriages are made in heaven. That lovers are each other's all or all the world to each other. And that monogamous marriage is therefore utterly logical and natural and forsaking all others involves no, no difficulty. Believing these things, a young couple could not be more cruelly exposed to the abrasions of experience or better prepared to experience marriage as another of those grim and ironic modern competitions in which the victory of one is the defeat of both. As experience frets away innocence, the exclusiveness of the sentimental ideal gives way to the possessiveness of sexual capitalism. Failing as they cannot help but fail to be each other's all, the husband and wife become each other's only. The sacrament of sexual union, which in the time of the household was a communion of workmates, and then tried to be a paradise of lovers, has now become a kind of marketplace in which husband and wife represent each other's sexual property. Competitiveness and jealousy, imperfectly sweetened and disguised by the illusions of courtship, now become governing principles and they work to isolate the couple inside their marriage. Marriage becomes a capsule of sexual faith. The man must look on other men and the woman on other women as threats. This seems to have become particularly damaging to women because of the progressive degeneration and isolation of their role. Their worldly stock and trade increasingly came to be their men. In the isolation of the resulting sexual privacy, the disintegration of the community begins. The energy that is the most convivial and unifying loses its communal forms and becomes divisive. This dispersal was nowhere more poignantly exemplified than in the replacement of the old ring dances in which all couples danced together by the so-called ballroom dancing in which each couple dances alone. A significant part of the etiquette of ballroom dancing is or was that the exchange of partners was accomplished by trade. It's no accident that this capitalization of marriage was followed by a divorce epidemic and by fashions of dancing in which each one of the dancers moves alone. The disintegration of marriage, which completes the disintegration of community, well, I just said it began it. <laughs> got, I've got to figure that out, I guess. <laughs> Came about because of the encapsula encapsulation of sexuality. The, the, the encapsulation of, of sexuality meant to preserve it from competition inevitably enclosed competition. The principle that fenced everyone else out fenced the couple in. It became a sexual cul-de-sac. The model of economic competition proved as false to marriage as to farming. As with other capsules, the narrowness of the selective principle proved destructive of what it excluded, and what it excluded was essential to the life of what it enclosed, the nature of sexuality itself. Sexual romance can't bear to acknowledge the generality of instinct. Sexual capitalism cannot acknowledge its particularity, but sexuality appears to be both general and particular. One cannot love a particular woman, for instance, unless one loves womanhood in general, if not all women, at least other women. The capsule of sexual romance leaves out this generality, this generosity of instinct, 
It excludes Aphrodite and Dionysus, and it fails for that reason. Though sexual love cannot endure between the same two people, it can endure between the same two people for a long time. It can't do so on the basis of this pretense of the exclusiveness of affection. The sexual capitalist, that is, the disillusioned sexual romantic, in reaction to disillusion, makes the, very, the opposite oversimplification. One acknowledges one's spouse as a kind, as, as my husband or my wife, particularizing by the possessive pronoun. We were talking about this last night, some of us, in a conversation which I, it was pointed out that I've, I've done this since I've been here myself. But that there is also a kind of etiquette in that. You got to, if you go around calling your wife by her first name, to people who don't know her, um, she might be thought your daughter or your mistress or your mother. <clears throat> Both these attitudes look on sexual love as ownership. When the sexual romantic croons, you belong to me, the sexual capitalist believes the same thing but has stopped crooning. Each holds that a person's sexual property shall be sufficient unto him or unto her, and that the morality of that sufficiency is to be forever on guard against expropriation. Within the capsule of marriage, as in that of economics, one intends to exploit one's property and to protect it. Once the idea of property becomes abstract or economic, both these motives begin to rule over it. They are, of course, contradictory. All that one can really protect is one's right or intention to exploit. The, prop, the proprieties and privacies used to encapsulate marriage may have come from the tacit recognition that exploitive sex, like exploitive economics, is a very dirty business. One makes a secret of the sexuality of one's marriage for the same reason that one posts keep out private property on one's strip mine. The tragedy, more often felt than acknowledged, is that what is exploited becomes undesirable. Then I, of course, got launched off into the issue of fidelity uh, and, and what that means. Uh, I want to say I don't have any qualification to write any of this except experience and, and um, need. Um, so I can't really say that I'm satisfied with anything I've, that I've uh, uh, said in here. What I've really exposed uh, to my bewilderment at my age is, is my ignorance. Well, I thought I'd know a lot more by, time, by this time. <laughs> but wh what I was saying about fidelity and I really can't, I, uh, really very hard for me to approach this issue directly. Uh, I know that it's necessary in other things and, and realize that I'd lost sight, uh, though I practice it, of, of what the, the use of it is. Uh, but what, what I thought was that what fidelity does is make, they sort of protect devotion from novelty. Uh, it, make, it makes devotion possible in some sense. But that what we've done is construe it so tightly that it excludes the, the, the business of choice. And uh, I went to a poem of Yeats. I think it's called Solomon and the Witch, by which he means Sheba, in which he talks about this issue. Solomon and Sheba are talking about their lovemaking of the, of the night before in which it seemed that they almost got back into paradise. The, uh, in the, in the, in this, uh, these lines that I'm going to read, the world, when he says the world ends, he means the world, the after the fall world. What, what uh, Solomon says to Sheba is this, maybe the bride bed brings despair, for each an imagined image brings and finds a real image there. Yet the world ends when these two things, though several, are a single light. That is, chance and choice come together. That is, um, 
you desire anew what you chose before. Well, I'll go back, I'll get back to that issue later. What I've been trying to do is define a pattern of disintegration that is one, at once cultural and agriculture, and uh, agricultural, obviously other things too. I've been groping after connections that I think are indissoluble, though obscured by modern ambitions, between the spirit and the body, the body and other bodies, the body and the world. If these connections do necessarily exist, as I believe they do, then it's impossible for material order to exist side by side with spiritual disorder or vice versa, and impossible for one to thrive long at the expense of the other. It's impossible ultimately to preserve ourselves apart from our willingness to preserve other creatures or to respect and care for ourselves except as we respect and care for other creatures. And most of the point of, of my concern in, in this, it's impossible to care for each other more or differently than we care for. The last will be obvious enough when it's considered that the earth is what we all have in common. It is what we're made of, what we live from, and, what we and that we therefore cannot damage it without damaging those with whom we share it. But I believe it goes farther and deeper than that. There is an uncanny resemblance between our behavior toward each other and our behavior toward the earth between our relation to our own sexuality and our relation to the reproductivity of the earth, for instance, the resemblance is plain and strong and apparently inescapable. By some connection that we do not recognize, the willingness to exploit one becomes the willingness to exploit the The conditions and the means of exploitation are likewise similar. The modern failure of marriage that has so estranged the sexes seems analogous to the social mobility that has estranged us from our land, and the two are historically parallel. It may even be argued that these two estrangements are very close to being one, both of them having been caused by the disintegration of the household, which was the formal bond and the practical bond between marriage and the earth, between human sexuality and its sources, and the sexuality of, of the creation. Uh, then I went off into a, a look at the Odyssey, not, not because uh, I think everybody ought to behave like Odysseus or even like Penelope, but um, because the Odyssey gives a moral structure that, that joins marriage really uh, intricately to the earth. Now, I'll summarize that as quickly as I can. Uh, when the Odyssey begins, Odysseus is on Calypso's island. He's both sleeping with her every night and experiencing terrible homesickness. And that, uh, at night, there is the delight of the cave of Calypso. In the daytime, Odysseus goes around on the other side of the island and looks toward home and cries. Homer doesn't, doesn't stint either one of those feelings. The fact that they exist side by side is simply possible to him. And then Odysseus starts home, and he comes out of the, this, the uh, sea in the Odyssey, as I read it, is, is the wilderness. It's the unharvestable sea. <clears throat> and as he comes home, he comes from the sea across the margin of the shore. Then he's on his island. And he enters a system that, of, of relationships of, uh, uh, that re re relate to each other not as concentric circles, but like concentric circles. The island, his land that he farms, that, uh, his town, his house and household, his bedroom, his bed. And then when he's got that far, you know, the Odyssey, is a, 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 it's dramatic structures, a series of, of recognition scenes, and the critical recognition scenes between Odysseus and Penelope. Because Penelope's been putting these uh, suitors off for 20 years, and here's this guy claiming to be Odysseus. He's been recognized by everybody else. He's passed every test. But you can imagine how Penelope felt 
this guy, the next thing he's going to do is sleep with her. She says, I'm not, uh, <laughs> I'm not ready for that yet. She says, uh, here, Eureka, the old nurse, says, take his bed out in the hall and make it up for him out there. And Odysseus has a fit. And by that fit, she knows him. You know, wives know their husbands by their fits. <laughs> but this particular fit is caused by the fact that, that Odysseus knows that that bed, and she knows it. It's their sign, she says, our secret sign. That bed's rooted in the ground. One of the, one of the bedposts is the trunk of an olive tree that he built the bridal chamber around. Uh, so there's a, a, a really, uh, when Odysseus, Calypso says, you've got a choice now. She says, you can stay with me. We'll make love, and you'll be immortal. She says, surely Penelope can't be any more beautiful than I am. Odysseus says, my quiet Penelope, how well I know it, would be but a shade before your majesty. But he says, I want to go home. <laughs> And it's the same choice Adam makes when he decides to eat the apple in Paradise Lost, to choose love and death all in the same motion. It's a marriage ceremony that uh, Odysseus and the other woman perform a marriage ceremony between Odysseus and Penelope. It's a curious thing. But when Odysseus says home, he means Penelope, but he means everything else that's there in a very complex moral structure that's surrounded by wilderness, which in some sense Calypso represents. So I then take off from there and get on to the end of my, my passage about this subject, which is kind of long. And I'll hurry. Domestic order is obviously threatened by the margin of wilderness that surrounds it. Marriage may be destroyed by instinctive sexuality. The husband may choose to remain with Calypso, or the wife may run away with godlike Paris. And the forest is always waiting to overrun the fields. These are real possibilities. They must be considered and respected, maybe even feared. And yet I think that no culture that hopes to endure can afford to destroy them or to set absolute safeguards against them. Invariably, the failure of organized religions by which they cut themselves off from mystery and therefore from the sacred is, the intent, is in the attempt to impose an absolute division between faith and doubt, to make belief perform as knowledge. And the most dangerous tendency in modern society, now rapidly emerging as a scientific industrial ambition, first it started with the idea of, of an enclosed farm, the National Geographic popularized this about 1970. And now it's got into the, they put the farm into a space capsule. These, that's the, the to, to encapsulate the human order, to take what you can understand and what you can bring yourself to desire and put it inside a glass ball. And that's to sever once for, and for all the umbilical cord that, that ties us to the wilderness of mystery and natural force. The threat does not lie just in the totalitarian desire for absolute control. It lies in the will, willingness to ignore an essential paradox. Those natural forces that so threaten us are the same forces that preserve and renew us. An enduring agriculture must never cease to consider and respect and preserve the wilderness. The farm can only exist within the wilderness of mystery and natural force. And if the farm is to last and remain in health, the wilderness must survive in the farm. That's what agricultural fertility is, the survival of natural process within the human order. To learn to preserve the fertility of the farm, Sir Albert Howard said, we must study the forest. In the same way, the instinctive sexuality within which marriage exists must somehow be made to thrive within the marriage. 
to divide one from the other is to degrade both and ultimately to destroy marriage, maybe the instinctive sexuality too, or both at once. Fidelity to human order, then, if it is fully responsible, implies a fidelity also to the natural order. Fidelity to the human order makes devotion possible. Fidelity to the natural order preserves the possibility of choice, the possibility of the renewal of devotion. Where there's no possibility of choice, there's no possibility of faith. One who returns home to one's marriage and household and place in the world, desiring anew what was previously chosen, is neither the world's stranger nor its prisoner, but is at once in place and free. The relation between these two fidelities, inasmuch as they will sometimes appear to contradict one another, cannot help but be complex and tricky. In our present stage of cultural evolution, it can't help but be baffling also. And yet it's only the double faith that's adequate to our need. If we are to have a culture as resilient and competent in the face of necessity as it needs to be, then it must somehow involve within itself a ceremonious generosity toward the wilderness of, nat of nature and instinct, force and mystery. The farm must yield a place to the forest, not as a woodlot or even as necessary agricultural principle, but as a sacred grove, a place where the creation is let alone to serve as instruction, example, refuge, a place for people to go free of presumption and work to let themselves alone. And marriage must recognize that it survives because of, as well as in spite of, Calypso and Paris and the generosity of instinct that they represent. It must give some ceremonially acknowledged place to the sexual energies that now thrive outside all established forms in the destructive freedom of moral ignorance and disregard. Without these accommodations, we will remain divided. Some of us will continue to destroy the world for purely human ends, while others, for the sake of nature, will abandon the task of human order. What forms or revisions of forms may be adequate to this double faith, I do not know. It seems a, a part of responsibility to not know. Cultural solutions are organisms, not machines, and they cannot be deliberately invented and imposed by prescription. Perhaps all that one can do is clarify as well as possible the needs and pressures that bear on the processes of evolution. I'm certain, however, that no satisfactory solutions can come from considering marriage alone or agriculture alone or anything else alone. These are, uh, those two are our basic connections to each other and to the earth, and they tend to relate analogically and to be reciprocally defining. Our demands upon the earth, for instance, are determined by our ways of living with one another. Our regard for one another is brought to light in our ways of using the earth. And I'm certain that neither can be changed for the better in the experimental prescriptive ways we've been using. I think yeah, I'm very un uneasy lest what I say be taken as an excuse for experimenting by somebody. Uh, I think the questions I'm raising are practical questions. They can't be anything else, and yet there's a, the, the, there's a thing in experimentation that suggests that it doesn't matter to the materials involved if the <coughs> experiment fails, and I, that's impractical to me. The household is the bond of marriage that is most native to it. It grows with it and gives it substantial being in the world. It's the practical connection within, the, within which the husband and wife can enact devotion and loyalty to each other. Better, more dependable that way than in, uh, uh, that's a more, more dependable form of enactment than sex because uh, dutiful work toward each other 
at times when you don't feel like doing it is not debilitating, whereas dutiful sex is. The motive power of sexual love is thus joined directly to constructive work and is given communal and ecological value. Without the particular demands and satisfactions of the making and keeping of a household, the sanctity and legality of the marriage remain abstract, in effect theoretical, and its sexuality becomes a danger. Work is the health of love. To last, love must enflesh itself in the materiality of the world, produce food, shelter, warmth, or shade, surround itself with careful acts, well-made things. This, I think, is what Millen Brand means in local lives when he speaks of the threat of love, so that perhaps acres of earth and its stones are needed and drawn out work and monotony to balance that danger. Marriage and the care of the earth are each other's disciplines. Each makes possible the enactment of fidelity toward the other. As the household has become increasingly generalized as a function of the economy, and as it has, as a consequence, become increasingly mobile and temporary, these vital connections have been weakened and finally broken. And whatever has been thus disconnected has become a ground of exploitation for some breed of salesman, specialist, or expert. A direct result of the disintegration of the household is the isolation of sexuality and fertility and their virtual takeover by specialists. The specialists of human sexuality are the sexual clinicians and the pornographers, both of whom subsist on the increasing possibility of sex between people who neither know nor care about each other. The specialists of human fertility are the evangelists, technicians, and salesmen of birth control who subsist upon our failure to see any purpose or virtue in sexual discipline. In this, as in our use of every other kind of energy, our inability to contemplate any measure of restraint or forbearance has been ruinous. Here the impulse is characteristically that of the laboratory scientist to encapsulate sexuality by separating it absolutely from the problems of fertility. Here again, we have violated an essential doubleness of faith by making it singular. This division occurs, it seems to me, in a profound cultural failure. That failure is in the loss of any sense that sexuality and fertility might exist compatibly together in this world. We've lost this possibility because we do not understand, because we cannot bear to consider the meaning of restraint. This is a theme of my book, uh, that one can't act as a god because one is partial, not whole in and of oneself. Therefore, you get to the paradox that only restraint makes us whole. The sort of restraint I'm talking about is illustrated in an article on the people of Hunza in northern Pakistan in the National Geographic of uh, November 75. The National Geographic is an excellent hunting ground for outrages. Here's something good I found in it. <laughs> the author is a woman, Sabrina Michaud, and she's talking with a Hunza woman in her kitchen one morning. What have you done to have only one child, she asks me. Her own children range from 12 to 30 years of age and seem evenly spaced, four or five years apart. We leave our husband's bed until each child is weaned she explains simply. But this natural means of birth control has declined, the author goes ahead and says, and population has soared. The woman's remark is thus passed over and not returned to, but if I understand the significance of this paragraph, it's of great importance. The decline of this natural means of birth control seems to have been contemporaneous with the coming of roads and progress and the opening up of a previously isolated country. What is of interest is that in their isolation in arid, narrow valleys surrounded by the stone and ice of the Karakoram Mountains, these people had practiced sexual restraint as a form of birth control. They had neither our statistical expertise 
nor our doomed prophets of population growth. It just happened that placed geographically as they were, they lived always in sight of their agricultural limits, and they made a competent response. We have so far been unable, and then by we I sure include I, to my cost, I think, we have so far been unable to see the difference between this kind of restraint, a cultural response to an understood practical limit, and the obscure, self-hating, self-congratulating, Victorian self-restraint, of which our attitudes and technologies of sexual freedom are only the equally obscure other side. This so-called freedom parcels and fragments us, turns us more vehemently and violently than before, against our bodies and against the bodies of other people. I think there I'm thinking a lot about uh, women students I've become aware of lately who are really, in the name of sexual freedom, being worse used than ever by men, boys or whatever they, they may be. I haven't inquired too closely. <laughs> For the care or control of fertility, both that of the earth and that of our bodies, we've allowed a technology of chemicals and devices to replace absolutely the cultural means of ceremonial forms, disciplines, and restraints. We've gathered up the immense questions that surround the coming of life into this world and reduced them to simple problems for which we have manufactured and marketed simple solutions. An infertile woman and an infertile field both receive a dose of chemicals at the calculated risk of bad consequences and are thus equally reduced to the status of productive machines. And for unwanted life, sperm, ova, embryos, weeds, insects, and so on, we have the same sort of ready remedies for sale of cores and characteristically popularized by advertisements that speak of advantages, but not of problems. The result is that we're bringing on a generation of young people who feel simply that they are free from worry, in quotes, free from worry, about fertility. The pharma pharmacist or the doctor will look after the fertility of the body, and the farming experts and agribusinessmen will look after the fertility of the earth. This is to short-circuit human culture at the source. It is, in effect, to remove from consciousness the two fundamental issues of human life. It permits two great powers to be regarded and used as if they were unimportant. More serious is the resort to authorized modes of direct violence, in land use, this is the permanent diminishment or destruction of fertility as an allowable cost of production, as in strip mining, or as in the sort of agriculture that moral farmers have, have for a long time referred to as mining, land skimming, I think they say in England. This use of technological means cuts across all issues of health and culture for the sake of an annual quota of production. The human analog is in the harmless, quote, and simple, quote, surgeries of permanent sterilization, which are now being promoted by a propaganda of extreme oversimplification. The publicity on this subject typically is evangelical in tone and simplistically moral. The operations are recommended like commercial products by advertisings complete with exuberant testimonials of satisfied customers and appeals to the prospective customer's maturity, masculinity, and his or her desire for freedom from worry and sexual freedom. And the possible physical and psychological complications are played down, misrepresented, not mentioned at all, or simply not known. It is altogether possible that the operation will be performed by a doctor as perfunctory, simplistic, presumptuous, and uninformative as the public literature. I'm fully aware 
of the problems of overpopulation. And I do not mean to say that any measure of birth control is unthinkable or that there is any that may not be necessary. What I do mean to say is that any kind of birth control is a very serious matter, both culturally and biologically, and that sterilization is the most serious of all. To give up fertility is a major change, as important as birth, puberty, marriage, or death. The great changes having to do with a woman's fertility, puberty, childbirth, and menopause, have, like sexual desire, the unarguable sanction of biological determinism. They belong to a kind of natural tradition. As a result, they're not only endurable, but they belong to a, to a, a process, the wheel of life, that we have learned to affirm with some understanding. We know, among other things, that it includes tragedy and survives it, even triumphs over it. The same applies to the occasions of a man's fertility, although not so formidably, a man being less involved physically in the predicament of fertility and consciously involved in it only if he wants to be. But nevertheless, a man comes to fertility, and if he's a moral person, to the same issues of responsibility that it poses for women. One of the fundamental interests of human culture is to impose this responsibility to subject fertility to moral will. Culture articulates needs and forms for sexual restraint and involves issues of value in the process of mating. It's easy to imagine that the resulting tension is a distinctly human form of energy, highly productive of works of the hands and the mind. But until recently, there was no tension between culture and biology in the relation of sexuality and fertility. No distinction was made because none was possible. <laughs> this distinction was made possible by modern technology, and it subjected human fertility, like the fertility of the earth, to a new kind of will, the technological will, which may not necessarily oppose the moral will, but which has not only tended to do so, but has tended to replace it. Simply because it became possible and because it simultaneously became profitable, we've cut the cultural ties between sexuality and fertility, just as we have cut those between eating and farming. By freeing food and sex from worry, we've also set them apart from thought, responsibility, and the issue of quality. The introduction of chemical additives has tended to do away with the issue of taste or preference. The specialist of sex like the specialist of food, is dealing with a commodity which he can measure but cannot value. What is horrifying is not only that we are relying so exclusively on a technology of birth control that is still experimental, but that we are using it casually, in utter cultural nakedness, unceremoniously, without sufficient understanding, and as a substitute for cultural solutions. Exactly as we now employ the technology of land use. And to promote these means without cultural and ecological insight as merely a way to divorce sexuality from fertility, pleasure from responsibility, or to sell them that way for ulterior moral motives is to try to cure a disease by another disease. That is only a new battle in the, in the old war between body and soul as if we were living in front of a chorus of the most literal fanatics chanting, if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out. If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off. The technologists of fertility exercise the powers of gods and the social function of priests without community ties or cultural responsibilities. The clinicians of sex change the lives of people as the, as the clinicians of agriculture change the lives of places and communities to whom they are strangers and whom they do not know. They thrive in a profound cultural rift, and they are always accompanied by the exploiters who mine that rift for gold. The pornographer exploits sexual division. In working the similar division between us and our land, we have the agribusinessmen, the pornographers of agriculture. <laughs>
uh, I, I go on from there to this issue of, the, of uh, Sims subject. And I, the two are associated, both in the, 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 both these problems, that they've, they've become problematic, comes in this uh, despite of the body that we live in. You want to have a break now, or? Thank you for listening to the Lindisfarne Tapes. This podcast is brought to you by the Schumacher Center for a New Economics. For over 40 years, the mission of the Schumacher Center has been to envision the elements of a just and regenerative global economy, apply these elements in our home region in the Berkshires in western Massachusetts, and then develop the educational programs to share our results more broadly. To learn more about our work, visit our website at www.centerforneweconomics.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram. For more podcast content, check out our Schumacher Lectures podcast. To help strengthen our mission, you can make a donation at www.centerforneweconomics.org donate.